It's the Smuckers Uncrustables podcast with your host, Uncrustables. Okay, today's guest is rough around the edges. Please welcome Crust. Thanks for having me. Today's topic, he's round with soft pillowy bread. Hey. Filled with delicious PB&J. Are you talking about yourself? And you can take him anywhere. Why'd you invite And we are out of time. Are you really cutting me off? Uncrustables are the best part of the sandwich. Sorry, Crust. This is Max Hedrum. Hello? Anybody home? Hey! This is Our generation may not remember the moon landing, but we remember moon boots. If you owe a few cavities to candy cigarettes, learn your adverbs from schoolhouse rocks, burned your shins on a hot metal slide with sharp edges, exploding pop rocks for science, and you still want your MTV, then this podcast is for you. Dancing with Myself is dedicated to the decade of excess, the 1980s. So pull up your leg warmers and let's get physical. Like, it's your favorite Valley Girl, Heather, and I am back with episode three of Dancing with Myself. The Rubik's Cube became the world's best-selling toy in 1980, but in 1974, it was nothing more than a teaching prop for Erno Rubik, a professor in Budapest, Hungary. Even though the twisting and turning cube with its colorful sides eventually broke from his classroom to become popular in the late 1970s in communist Hungary, the puzzle seemed unlikely to ever make its debut outside of the country's borders due to tight government control on imports and exports. It was by accident that a toy specialist named Tom Krimmer saw the potential of the Magic Cube, as it was called at the time, and unleashed it to the world in 1980 through toy fairs in New York, Paris, London, and Nuremberg. The puzzle was a hit after its global launch in 1980. The smaller, lighter, faster cubes became a sensation across the world as 100 million puzzles were sold between 1980 and 1982. Soon after its global release, battles began to see who could complete the 3D combination puzzle quicker, and numerous books were published about how to solve it. In fact, at one point in 1981, three of the top 10 best-selling books involved Rubik's solving techniques. What? <laughs> one in seven people have held one of the puzzles in their hand. And on June 10th of 1981, an article by the Washington Post declared Rubik's Cube is a grown-up's toy, a puzzle that's moving like fast food right now. It is this year's hula hoop or bongo board, a hot tub for the mind. When carried in public, it has a talismanic aspect, like the tiny staves that Anglican bishops tote. If you've got it with you, it is maybe the one thing in the world that that may make you wish that the line in the bank were longer. Doubtful. <laughs> Where's the thief? By the end of 1980, the United States had a stockpile of more than 23,000 nuclear weapons, which would not be outdone by the Soviet Union that had more than 30,000. From the beginning of the decade until its end, the two countries performed a combined 327 nuclear tests. The stockpile and testing alarmed the world during the most contentious decade of the Cold War, which accelerated in 1980 after the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan on Christmas Eve of 1970. 
1979, the United States denounced the invasion of Afghanistan. President Reagan sought to eliminate nuclear weapons, but provided rationale for their existence, saying in his 1984 State of the Union address, A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. The only value in our two nations possessing nuclear weapons is to make sure they will never be used. But then, would it not be better to do away with them entirely? Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, who came into power in 1985, agreed with Reagan on many points regarding nuclear stockpiles and set out to repair strained relationships with the United States. The relationship between the nations resulted in a reduction in nuclear weapons and into the Cold War in late 1991 and the beginning of a normalized existence between the two superpower countries. Suffering from clinical depression and delusions caused by diagnosed paranoid schizophrenia, Mark David Chapman took the life of John Lennon, co-founder of the Beatles, on December 8th of 1980. Inspired by J.D. Salinger's novel about teenage alienation, The Catcher in the Rye, Chapman stalked Lennon on the day he met the world-renowned musician outside of his apartment and then shot him in the back four times. In his early years, Chapman adored the Beatles. He learned to play the guitar, he grew his hair long, like the members of the Fabulous Four, and dabbled in psychedelic drugs. However, a change within Chapman occurred when he became a Christian and officially denounced the band after Lennon famously said the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Chapman immediately sold his Beatles record collection and moved in a different direction. Lennon's anthem, Imagine, was said to have set off the killer, and when Chapman sang it, he changed the lyrics to, Imagine John Lennon was dead. By 1980, Chapman was obsessed with the notion of a dead Lennon, and it grew deeper when he read an issue of Esquire that reported Lennon's net worth at $150 million. With a 38 revolver in his possession, along with a copy of The Catcher in the Rye, his claimed manifesto, Chapman approached Lennon at the Dakota apartment building in New York City. Chapman recalled, There was no emotion in my blood. There was no anger. There was nothing. It was dead silence in my brain. Dead, cold, quiet, until he walked up. He looked at me. He walked past me, and then I heard a voice in my head. The voice said, Do it. Do it. Do it. Once the news of Lennon's death reached the world, people mourned, and a worldwide vigil was held on December 14th of 1980. 